Tonight we're going to be starting off talking about the Lord of the Harvest. After Jesus had shared with us in the end of chapter 9 about those who were coming to Him and saying they wanted to follow Him, but they were basically pretending to be followers. Jesus is looking for focused, committed, devoted people to truly follow Him. And that's why, to me, it, it flows very freely then into chapter 10 when the Bible says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of Him, two by two, into every town and place where He Himself was about to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Go, I am sending you out like lambs surrounded by wolves. First of all, you'll notice there, as the Lord of the harvest, he is lifting us up when he appoints us and gives us the privilege of serving Him. The word appointed there literally means to lift up and exhibit for all to behold. That's what God wants to do with our lives. He wants to save us. He wants to pour Himself into us. He wants to fill us with His Spirit so He can set us like a light on a hill. And it can exhibit us for all to see. He wants to lift us up. Now we've seen in the book of James that the way up from... Christ's perspective is in a sense to go down, to humble ourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Because God rejects the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And when we humble ourselves before the Lord, He will lift us up so that others can see. That's part of what the Lord of the harvest does. You also notice there, as we said, He sends out teams two by two. It's important to have ministry partners in your life. If you're going to do ministry, God never intended for us to do ministry in isolation, alone. He wants us to learn to work together. And there's many other reasons why God wants us to go out as partners in ministry. I mean, we can protect each other. We can be companions for each other. We can mutually encourage each other, but in this context, it also ties into what the Old Testament taught, which was by two witnesses, things would be established. Not by one, but by two. And so sending teams out two by two, Jesus was establishing two witnesses every time they went out. You also see here that Jesus is always looking for workers as the Lord of the harvest, he said, basically, there's more people that want to come into the kingdom than there are those focused on bringing them into the kingdom. And this word worker here that Jesus uses in verse 2 means energetic, focused laborers. Wow, no wonder the workers are few. First of all, he's looking for people who are energetic and passionate about him what he's done in their life, what he can do in other people's lives. They're excited about the Word of God. They're energetic, they're passionate, and they're focused 
Unlike the three gentlemen that we saw at the end of chapter 9 who said, well, Jesus, I want to follow you, but let me first... No, there was devotion, there was commitment, there was focus in this word. And then they're willing to work and labor. That's what Jesus is looking for today. Energetic, focused laborers who are not easily distracted. Then notice he asked for prayer. He asked that people would ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And, and by the way, notice that he is the Lord of the harvest, not us. It's not our harvest, it's his. He takes care of the harvest. What we're to do is go out and be a light and plant seed. It, the results are not up to us. We are simply to be faithful to what God has called us to do. But by asking for people to ask God to send out laborers into the harvest, He's really asking us to focus on the harvest. Do we live each month, each week, each day as a Christian thinking about the harvest of souls that's out there? Does that even cross our minds? See, one of the reasons why God is saying, I want you to ask the Lord of the harvest, because if we're asking God, if we're praying to God, then that's where our focus is. Prayer is about seeing what's important to God. So many times as human beings, we're so self-focused that we think prayer is about taking what we want and what we need to God. And that's a very small part of prayer. Prayer is primarily getting our hearts where God's heart is. And so when we communicate to God, when we talk to God, when we're asking God and we're in His presence, if we're thinking about the harvest, then that's good because that's what God's thinking about. He's thinking about those other souls out there that still need to be gathered into the kingdom. And He wants to use us to be part of that process of witnessing and testifying and and telling people about Jesus Christ. Being able to articulate our faith and share our testimony. And tell others what God has done and what God is doing in our lives and the difference that He makes. This is why Jesus said, ask. Because prayer will help us to get God's priorities to become our priorities. And then notice... He also gives great warning. He makes no bones about it. He doesn't sugarcoat what's going to happen. He says, go, but I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Literally hostile adversaries. Ministry is not going to be easy. You're going to have opposition. You're going to have people challenge you. You're going to have people reject you. But I'm the one sending you out, and I'm the Lord of the harvest, and I will be with you, and I'll give you my power and strength. I'll give you the words that you need to say. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. Go and make disciples. The other thing Jesus is warning about here, because basically I don't want to take time. We, we took time last week. To, it's, it's a similar command here that Jesus is giving to the 72 that he gave to the 12. When he says, don't worry about what you take. If you go into a city, stay in one house, don't jump around, all that. And the point is that we learned from last week is Jesus will provide for them. 
they had to learn to trust him to provide for them through others. But then he goes on and actually says more here than he did before. When he does warn them, notice up in verse 9, heal the sick in that town, say to them, the kingdom of God has come upon you, or literally is near you. Then he says, whenever you enter a town and the people do not welcome you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe out against you, or off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come, literally is near. I tell you, it will be more tolerable or bearable on that day, the day of judgment for Sodom, than for that town. Then he goes down in verse 13 and basically says the same thing. To any city or town that he and the disciples have went, he said it's going to be more tolerable for Old Testament cities, cities that that the prophets went to, cities like Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for these cities couple things then this great warning jesus is reminding us that just like there will be degrees of reward in heaven there will be degrees of judgment and punishment in hell not every buddy will be held equally accountable because the greater the light the greater the responsibility and jesus is basically warning all mankind If you've been given greater light and you've rejected greater light, you're going to be held more greatly responsible for it. Can I just say, as much as I love and want people to come to the Oasis, there should be a warning over our entrance. Warning. The Word of God is taught here. Reason being because you go into a church where you're going to get this much truth on Sundays and Tuesdays, guess what? God holds us more accountable than he does someone that goes to a church that gets a verse a week. The more, the more light you and I get, the more responsible we are. And that's what Jesus is sharing here as well. That's why even in verse 15, he says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be thrown down, literally humbled to Hades. Capernaum was like sort of Jesus' headquarters during his three-year ministry. He did more miracles and he did more of everything, more teaching in Capernaum than anywhere else. And yet all this light was primarily rejected by the people of Capernaum. Greater the light, greater the responsibility. But then we come to the joy of God. Notice the Bible says then in verse 16, Jesus said, the one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So he sent them out. We don't know exactly how much time then between the sending of them out and coming back, but then in verse 17, the Bible says the 72 returned. And they returned with joy. Again, remember, that's the Greek word kara. And don't forget the Greek word for grace is charis. Very similar. Because our joy is tied to really our acceptance and receiving God's grace. And when we go out, and we serve God and we minister by His grace, by His supernatural enablement, there will be a joy there. In fact, I put that 
in the notes. The joy of God can be seen in our service. If we're serving by God's enablement and not in our own power and strength, there will be a joy there. That there's nothing that to me uh, can give a Christian more joy than knowing and seeing God working through us to touch other people's lives. There's a joy that comes there. Because we're accepting God's grace in order to do it, and it brings such great joy when we see God using us in some way. So the Bible says the 72 return with joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You'll notice there in the notes, I put the joy of God as also seen in spiritual victory. In a sense, through the ministry of these 72, Jesus said, Satan has experienced a notable defeat. Now maybe in that day, and maybe even themselves, they just thought, hey, we're traveling around the towns and we're mostly facing rejection and there's a few people that's accepting our message, but not a lot. And they probably came back and even though they were excited that the demons submitted to them, notice they weren't very much excited about all these people that, that accepted their message. But Jesus saw it as a notable defeat of Satan that he was thrust down because of their ministry. And there is joy in spiritual victory when we see gaining, we're gaining ground for Jesus Christ. Whether that's true in our own lives and someone else's life, doesn't it bring joy when you see someone else opening up their life to Christ and God changing their life? It brings joy. When Satan and, and the powers of darkness are being overcome, it brings joy. And that's exactly what we see here. And then he says, look, I've given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and on the full force of the enemy and nothing will hurt you, damage you, harm you. He was going to supernaturally protect them during their ministry. But here's a very important verse. He says, nevertheless, your primary source of joy should never be in your ministry. Let me repeat that because we're going to come back to that at the end when we talk about Mary and Martha. Our primary joy of life should not be derived from our ministry or what we do for God. It should be in who we are. Because notice what Jesus says. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you. Don't, don't make that the reason you're so joyful. That's great. And I gave you the authority and power to be able to do that. But here's something even more that you should rejoice about. Rejoice that your names stand written in heaven. Jesus says that's where the glory comes from. Your name is engraved. It is inscribed in heaven. You are saved. Your sins are forgiven. You have an eternity to spend with me. You're a new creation. Old things are passing away. All things are becoming new. That should be a source of joy for every Christian every day that we live. Maybe some days we don't necessarily see God ministering or serving through us, but every day, every one of us can wake up and go to bed every night saying, Thank you, Jesus. I'm saved and my name is written in heaven. 
And Jesus says, that should be a source of our joy every day. There shouldn't be a day goes by that as a Christian, we don't thank God that we're saved. That there was a time in our life where we recognized that we were a sinner and we turned to Jesus Christ and we said, Jesus, set me free. Save me, deliver me. I cannot save myself. And there's nothing like knowing that moment when Jesus came into our life and He took away our sin and He forgave us and He set us free and He loosed us from the guilt and the shame and all of that. Jesus says, man, keep rejoicing in that. We also get joy through humility, through humbling ourselves. Notice in verse 21, on that same occasion, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden or concealed these things from the wise and intelligent, those who think they know everything and can't learn or be taught anything, and you revealed these spiritual truths to little children. Now, the words little children in the Greek literally mean untaught or unskilled. He's not literally talking about little children, not that little children can't learn spiritual truth, but in this context, he's talking to his disciples here. And they were unlearned, unskilled. He's contrasting his own disciples, fishermen and, you know, carpenters and tax collectors with the religious leaders of Israel. And the religious leaders of Israel who spent all those years, I'll use our terminology, in Bible college and seminary. It never helped them a bit to come to spiritual truth. And you've got this group over here who never were trained, never skilled, and they get it more than the religious leaders do. They have more light in them than the religious leaders do. The religious leaders, according to Jesus, are blind people leading the blind into the ditch. These are the people who have the light of God in them because they've humbled themselves and they're willing to be taught and they don't think they know it all. And there's joy in that. There's joy when we humble ourselves before God and God can teach us. And then, of course, connected with that, there's joy in illumination. Jesus is declaring here in verse 22 that he has an exclusive relationship with the Father. That no one knows the Father like he does. And that's why he can reveal the Father more clearly than anyone else can. He says, all things have been given to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal Him. And then Jesus turned to His disciples and said, privately, blessed, happy, prosperous, fortunate are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. They should rejoice in the fact that they have been illumined. They're seeing things that the prophets just wrote about. They're actually seeing it. They're hearing about things that the prophets long to hear about. And they're actually hearing it with their own ears. One of the great joys of my life is when I'm studying the Word of God. And God illuminates me about something. And I see something I never saw before. It's like, oh my goodness, it's cool. And if my wife's home, usually she hears about it. Lisa! If nobody's home, I just talk to myself. And I say, God, that's so cool. I, 
I've read that passage a million times. I never saw that before. Thank you, God. There's a joy when God illuminates us to something we never saw before. And so we see the Lord of the harvest and we see the joy of God. And then we come to a very familiar passage, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And notice in verse 25, an expert in the law came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I put there in the notes, what Jesus did was he reinforced God's standard. He took this expert in religious law and took him right back to the Old Testament and says, well, what is written in the law? And he said, well, the law says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's good. That's exactly what the law says. And so he says in verse 28, do this and you will live. We must remember that the law was never given to save man. The law was given to show man he could not save himself. He could not live up to the law. See, by telling the young man, well, then do what the law says. Nobody can do that all the time. That's why I put there, it requires faith to come to Christ, not deeds. Deeds are a product of our faith. But we cannot work for our salvation. Paul even said in the book of Romans, the law was given to show man he could not live up to that standard. But Jesus took him to the standard because the standard never changes. It's absolute perfection. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength every second you live and love your neighbor as yourself every second. You can do that, then you can live. No human being can ever live up to that standard on our own. And that's why, hopefully, the standard that God gives us is so high that we go, well, God, I can't do that. Right. That's why Jesus came and died. So that those of us who could never live up to God's standard could receive Christ who did live up to God's standard. And we have life through Him, not in what we can do. In fact, we understand this more clearly in verse 29 when it says the expert wanting to justify himself. See, there's the key. God gives us the key to this man's heart. It was really about, I want to do this so that I can get the glory for it. So I can go around and show people this is how good a person I am. And that's why no one will ever be justified by the deeds of the flesh. For as Paul says, the deep, by the deeds of the flesh, no one will ever be justified before God. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we'll never be able to justify ourselves and say, when we get to heaven, I'm in heaven because I was good enough. Because I could measure up. Because I could do enough good works. That will never be the case. And that's exactly where this young man was coming from. Notice, too, he says to Jesus, because he wanted to justify myself, well, then who is my neighbor? Notice, he wanted to redefine the demand. <laughs> the demand was high, or the standard was high, and he's like, well, if, if I get Jesus to sort of redefine what that demand is, then maybe I can live up to a limited demand, rather than the extensive demand of the law. 
So Jesus gave him the story. The man was going down to Jerusalem, fell into robbers. They stripped him. They beat him. They left him half dead. And not by chance, verse 31, a priest, a religious leader, sees him lying by the side of the road, half dead, and just passes right on by. Doesn't help him at all. Then a Levite, a helper to the priest, another religious leader in Israel, same thing, saw him, passed right on by. But in verse 33, Jesus says, a Samaritan who was traveling came to where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. Literally, I've used this word many times because it's used a lot in the New Testament. It means to be moved in the bowels and the intestines. And he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him, spent the night. Then the next day, took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him and whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back this way. And Jesus says, Which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the religious law said, the one who showed mercy to him. Literally, a kindness that helps. And Jesus said to him, then go and do the same. And we don't know how this man ended up. Did he ever come to faith in Christ? We don't know. I do want to point this out too. Notice that the man's question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, by the end of this parable, turns it around and says, who do you think became a neighbor? This man was more concerned about who's my neighbor so I can figure out who I need to be good to and who I don't. And Jesus turned it around on him and gave him the responsibility. You need to be a good neighbor to everyone that you come in contact with. And of course, I put there that the parable of the Good Samaritan not only reinforces God's standard and requires faith in order to come to, you know, a relationship with Christ, but there are is a response indeed that if we do love God and we have a relationship with Him, then we will respond in obedience and in love to others. And the Samaritan loved even a stranger. And we see a couple things in this story. First of all, it tells us and reminds us love takes action. Love isn't just words. Love will always be demonstrated with action. That's what the Greek word agapeo means. An active love, not a passive love. And the second thing primarily we learn about this love is it is always costly. This was inconvenient for this man to stop. He was on his way somewhere, but he stopped He spent an extra day that he wasn't planning on. He certainly spent money and resources that he wasn't planning on because that's what love is. Love is costly. And Jesus Christ ultimately demonstrated that. He gave his very life on the cross for us. That's how costly love can be. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would be willing to lay down his life for his friends. And the Samaritan demonstrated That in this parable that Jesus gave. It's a great challenge to us about when we do know God, how we should respond. But we don't get to God through good deeds. Good deeds are the product of already knowing 
God, unlike the expert in the religious law wanted it to be. Well, we get to my favorite part of the passage tonight. I could have spent the whole 40 minutes on these few verses because Martha and Mary, the story of Martha and Mary, has so much in it for us as Christians, but especially for us who are in any kind of ministry and service for the Lord. So I want to just spend the next 10 minutes here on these verses. I want to read the verses and then want to go back and just share some really, I think, important thoughts. As they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he said. But Martha was distracted with all the preparations she had to make, so she came up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the best part and it will not be taken away from her. There's a lot in this passage and we're not going to get to near scratching the surface, but I want to hit a couple highlights here. Again, this passage is really a challenge to all Christians, but especially to any of us who are involved in any kind of service or ministry for the Lord. And here's why. Because this passage, first of all, tells us the wrong way to serve. What do I mean by that? Well, Martha has Jesus in her house. And yet the Bible says she is is so distracted and being pulled around her house trying to get this all done to give them a meal that she doesn't have time to actually spend with the people that she's invited over. And Jesus is saying here, don't we miss what we're really trying to accomplish when we're involved in ministry and we make it so elaborate and we, we, we go from it staying simple to the point where wasn't the whole point of inviting people over to fellowship with them and get to know them rather than not being with them? Now, some could say, well, if more people would have pitched in to help her, then maybe she could have sat down. She's the one that made that choice. No one else made that for her. This passage also reminds us that the wrong way to serve is when we're trying to serve out of the fumes of our own life rather than the overflow of what fellowship and communion with Jesus Christ can give us. See, I don't see that Martha's a servant and Mary's lazy. I think Mary's a servant. But Mary understands the right way to serve. I can serve more effectively and efficiently and all that by taking time to sit at my Savior's feet and soak up what He can give me and then go and serve rather than what Martha tried to do. Because you and I can't really serve effectively that way. I'll give you an illustration that might stick. 
Years ago, one of my mentors shared this with me. Two lumberjacks were cutting wood for eight hours a day. The one lumberjack never took a break. He just kept hacking away at that wood, that pile of wood, the whole eight hours. The other lumberjack stopped every hour for ten minutes. And the lumberjack that stopped every hour for ten minutes during the eight hours actually chopped more wood than the lumberjack that never stopped. And the lumberjack that never stopped at the end was just, he was dumbfounded. He looks at the guy that had stopped every hour for 10 minutes and goes, I don't get it. I never stopped. You stopped every hour for 10 minutes. How did you cut more wood than I did? And the lumberjack that stopped said, every hour for 10 minutes, I was sharpening my axe. You and I need to realize that sometimes we get further by taking time to sharpen our axe than we do by just putting our head down and keeping on going. And Martha had the mentality, I'm just going to put my head down and keep on going. And Mary was like, no, it's time for me to sharpen my axe. And the way I'm going to sharpen my axe and be a more effective servant is because Jesus is in my home. How many times does Jesus come to my home? I'm sitting at his feet. Let's feed him some grapes or something. You know, we don't need to be out there fixing a 10-course meal. Let's make this simple so that all of us can sit at Jesus' feet, which leads me to the next point. In the notes, I not only have that this illustrates the wrong way to serve, it illustrates the wrong motive for service. Because when Jesus tells Martha, when he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. You know what the Greek says there? That the reason she was anxious and troubled about many things is because she was trying to promote self through her ministry. In other words, listen to what Jesus is saying. Martha, the reason you were out there in the kitchen killing yourself, trying to throw this elaborate meal for me and my followers who passed by, is because you wanted to throw this so that people would go, wow. Wow, look at what Martha did. Did you, did you taste what Martha made? Man, I've never had anything better than that. And, and Jesus is simply saying, the reason you were pulled in all these different directions and you were ministering this way is not because you were trying to bring glory to God, not because you were really trying to serve other people. You were ministering and serving because you were trying to draw attention to yourself through your ministry and service. And Jesus says, no, Martha... That's not the way to serve. That's not the motive for service. Christians, we have to be careful that when we get involved in serving and ministering for the Lord, that we don't go to some extreme and tie our own identity into that ministry. That's a very dangerous thing for us to do. Where... Let me say it this way. The success of that ministry or how that ministry goes is a reflection on me. And I've got to make myself look good. So I'm going to run everybody else into the ground around me who's working with me. And, and I'm, going to, I'm going to demand a lot from them because this, this is my reputation is on the line with this ministry. 
And Jesus would say, well, that's not the right motive for ministry. And that's exactly where Martha was finding herself. The reason she was doing all that she was doing was because she wanted the reaction. of, wow, Martha, what a great table setting. And man, Martha, nobody ever made Bethany brownies like you did. Mary and Martha lived in Bethany. I thought Bethany brownies was pretty, you know. But then notice at the very end, as I put there in the notes, right choices are rewarded by God. And notice, here's a woman who in her own house is screaming at Jesus. I mean, you, you can get the picture. Jesus, tell my sister to come help me. Jesus doesn't cave. Don't be intimidated by people like Martha. Again, part of the reason why they're acting the way they are with people around them is because they're not at peace within themselves. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to tell your sister to go help you. In fact, I'm going to commend your sister because she's the one in this instance that made the right choice. And I'm not going to cut off my fellowship with her just because you're doing it wrong. She can sit here at my feet as long as she wants. Because that was the better choice. One of the things that I will always try to encourage here at the Oasis is we want you to serve. We, we want to empower people to serve. But no ministry is more important than the person or the people who are running it or who are being ministered to. If, if somehow we're trying to drive people in our ministries and we're running them into the ground simply because we want to look good and it's for our own reputation and we're losing people all around us, I'm sorry, that's not biblical. And I would rather anybody even who heads a ministry or who works in a ministry come up and say, you know what, Jeff? I'm being overwhelmed and I don't have enough help. Like okay, then we don't want you to drown just because of the ministry. You're more important in the ministry. The ministry is not more important than people. That's why we'll scale things back here at the Oasis rather than keep on trucking. Because we're not going to just let people go by the wayside for the sake of ministry. That's why every once in a while we'll make you know, appeals for... People to help out, say, Crystal and children's ministry. She almost had 60 there on Sunday. Folks, we're getting a lot of new people to come visit, and our children's ministry is just like the church. And, and yet, I'll tell Crystal, Crystal, if you have to cut back children's ministry to bare bones because you can't get enough people to help every once in a while, and, and by the way, we are getting new people to help. Many of you are stepping up to help, and thank you for that. So I'm not, but I'm just saying, if we would get to a point where in some season, you know, she can't get enough people to help, and there's three or four people over there that's taking the whole load of the children's ministry, time out. 
Because that's, that's not the way God wants ministry to be. We don't sacrifice people for the sake of ministry. Because ministry is all about people anyway. And Martha had lost that somewhere along the line. And Mary, had she got it. And hopefully she kept it for the rest of her life. And hopefully we will as well. All of us need to be reminded, if we are serving in any capacity or ministering for the Lord in any way, and all of us should be serving the Lord in some way, God wants us to minister out of the overflow of what He's doing in our life. Not out of the fumes of us trying to just keep above water. I would rather us as a church have three ministries in our entire church and have them run well and have enough people to run those ministries to where it doesn't fall a heavy burden on any one person than to have 20 ministries that one person runs and they end up just being overwhelmed. Because that's what we're seeing here. Martha is drowning in her own ministry. And it was needless. It didn't have to be that way. So what a great passage Jesus teaches us about ministry for Him. Jesus will always encourage us to spend time with Him above anything else. Because He understands that the more time I spend at His feet, in His presence, listening to Him, and whatever, the more effective and efficient I'm going to be out there when I do get called to serve. Think about this for the next week. How am I as a Christian sharpening my axe? How am I as a Christian sharpening my axe? Let's pray. God, thank you for these great, Stories from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Principles, Lord, that are so clear. Literally fleshed out by people that Jesus came in contact with. And Lord, we pray that these wouldn't be just stories and words on a page that would just sit there, but that they literally would climb out of this Bible and jump into our life and into our hearts and minds and, Lord, grip us. And grip us so strongly, Lord, that we, we couldn't live a day without thinking about what Jesus said and meditating on what Jesus said and wrestling with what Jesus said and applying what Jesus said. For, Lord, especially here at the very end, you certainly encourage us to sit at your feet. You said, Mary made the right choice and it won't be taken away from her. Wow. That's pretty cool when Jesus is saying, if you want to spend time with me, I want to spend time with you and I'll never tell you to leave. So Lord, help us above everything else spend time with you and when you do ask us to serve you and minister for you, may it be out of the overflow of what you're giving us in our fellowship with you. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.